starting today, uh, we're going to look at our Savior. Our Savior was promised, and we'll look at Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and then next Sunday, our Savior was sent, and we'll look at John 3.16, a very obscure passage in the Bible. I hope you can find it. And then we'll look at Luke chapter 2, our Savior was born. So we're going to be gazing this Advent, Advent as we uh, anticipate the coming of the Lord, first in his birth and even to our day we anticipate his return, which is the second Advent. But our hope is in the Lord, the promised Prince of Peace. And that's something that I want us to appreciate in Micah as we uh, look at Micah this morning. So if you have your Bible open to Micah chapter 5, could you find it? (laughs) Micah is one of... (laughs) I delight myself with my own sense of humor. Micah is called, uh, he belongs to one of the 12 minor prophets. They're minor, not because, not because they're less important. No, no, that's far from the case. They're minor because uh, they're shorter. Um, they're briefer than, say, Jeremiah or Isaiah, for example. But they often, they were called the 12 just the 12, and they were, they were often, like in the Jewish Bible, the First Testament to them, in the Jewish Bible, the 12 or the minor prophets uh, would just be one book, the 12, because of a common and the common circumstances and a common message. So I, th- I thought I would just throw that in for free. The first service didn't get that um, because you mean something special to me. <laughs> no, but that's important to keep in mind as we consider what Micah is saying to us uh, this morning. And so I'd like to read chapter, chapter 5 beginning with verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... By the way, you would muster troops from clans. So many people would go to war as the tribes were called upon to provide soldiers. They would go to war a certain number from from the clans. And Bethlehem is such a small clan, they they can't even muster the smallest amount that the others provide. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, what can you offer? Well, let me tell you, from you, 
shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, that is, the one who is born, the ruler that will come, and they shall dwell, and he will... He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great, to the ends of the, of the earth. Not just the territory of our people that we dwell in now, but to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When you read one of the prophets, such as Micah, sometimes it's a little hard to navigate because a lot of it is what we would call oral. For example, if you were writing down things that you heard someone standing on a corner preaching to people, some of it might be dictated by those who come up to the guy on the corner or the gal on the corner preaching and arguing with him. It's set in real life, and sometimes there are just little spurts of things that are said. Sometimes God is being invoked. He is speaking, but you're not always immediately aware, unless you read along for a little bit, that he's the one who's speaking. Sometimes it's the prophet who's speaking for himself, sometimes for the Lord, and sometimes in the words of those who are arguing with him. But the situation is so familiar. I mean, it could be rip, it could, <laughs> law and order. Where's law, where, where, does, where do the episodes of law and order come? They're ripped from the headlines. You didn't know that. You didn't know that? Yes, they're pulled right out of what's going on. Real life detective stories. True life crime. And what, Micah's talking about could be ripped from the headlines of our daily, nightly news stories. Yeah. The rich preying on the weak and the poor, getting rich off the backs of those who cannot fend for themselves, the powerful getting more powerful, the weaker getting weaker. But this is a covenant people. You know, we talk about Jew and Gentile. What really sets them apart is covenant. There are those who are not in covenant with God, and there are those who are in covenant. What is a covenant? It's a relationship. It's a special relationship. It has its own characteristics that help that relationship to thrive. 
And the people of that relationship, of that covenant, are whoring. They're watching. They're in a restaurant, and uh, half the couple is watching all the cute guys walking in the door. And instead of making conversation with the person that you came to the restaurant with, that you have the relationship with, you're leaning over and talking to all the people in the other tables and making plans with them. Let me read to you just a little. This is from chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. Now, that would apply to anybody, but this applies to a covenant people. These are the people that say, yeah, I'm big with Yahweh. God and I are tight. In fact, the, the corruption went all the way to the top. That's important to remember. Not just, not just the courts and the civil, you know, the people who run civic duties in the city or in the villages, but all the way up the ladder through the priesthood, the Levites, and up to the king. Okay? When the morning dawns, they perform it. That is what they've been scheming. Be- why? Because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields. They've got their eyes on things that don't belong to them. They want to take for themselves, for their own advantage, things that belong to others, who rightfully, that's called coveting, that's called greed. And they seize them. And houses they seize. And they take them away from their rightful owners. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family, his family, I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily. You're not going to swagger. <laughs> You're going to be bowed over. For it will be a time of disaster. If you want, you could read chapter 2 and chapter 3. That really lays it out. And in chapter 3, in fact, after repeating some of the kinds of things. In fact, let me read just chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. I said, Hear, listen up, you heads of Jacob. Now, who's Jacob? Well, God, God chose Abraham, and it was with Abraham that he made his first covenant. Abraham, who he brought out of beliefs in all other kinds of gods and what we would kind of style as just a general paganism. 
Abraham was not, so to speak, a holy man until God revealed himself to him. And he said to Abraham, in effect, Abraham, look at the world around you, how broken it is. Look at the mess everywhere you look. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And if you keep this covenant with me, see all those stars? Your descendants are going to be as vast as those stars. And out of those stars, I'm going to bring forth an anointed one, one who will save the whole world. See all that sand? Just pick a grain of sand. Out of your descendants, I'm going to bring forth a Savior. Well, Abraham had descendants, and among his descendants was Jacob, one of the sons of Isaac. Jacob wrestled with God, and it was Jacob who became, so to speak, the head of the 12 children who became the heads of 12 tribes and the people of God. But after he wrestled with God and God made a covenant, the covenant that Abraham, he made with Abraham, he extended to Jacob. And he said, I'm holding this covenant true with you, man. See, it's not just your grandfather, it's with you. And then he called them Israel because of it. And they became the Israelites. And now Micah is preaching to those Israelites, and he keeps invoking Abraham and Jacob, or Abraham, Jacob, slash Israel, because Israel is kind of like their chosen name. It says, you're select. And he says to him here, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? So how is it that you act so unjustly? You who hate the the evil. See, the people of God ought to be the most just, the most good, and the most loving. At least that's the trajectory. But now the people have just become so comfortable and in, in a practical way, it's like when we as Christians act like atheists, we become practical atheists. And so it is. These people of Abraham, people of God, people of Jacob and Israel, they're practical people like they don't even have a covenant with God. They're covenant people who who act like they don't have a covenant. They're fakes, and they trample God's justice. And God's saying to them, them who, verse 3, eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. In other words, they're devouring. The effect of what they're doing 
is devouring the very life of the people. Boy, can you just see Micah. I'll bet people walked way around him when he was preaching. Do you walk, when you hear the bell, the Salvation Army bell going into the store, you walk around kind of away from that? Just think if Micah was there preaching when you enter the store. People would be walking way around him. And he's describing why. Verse 2 of chapter 5. See, the daughter of Zion in verse 1 is Jerusalem. He's mentioned the daughter of Zion in verse 10 and 13 of chapter 4. But now he calls the daughter of Zion, which was an honorific title. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the daughter of Zion, you know. And now he calls her the daughter of troops. In other words, she's going to besiege armies from the east, the Assyrians, the land of the Syrians, Assyrians, and Babylonians. The Assyrians are coming, and they're going to lay siege. They're going to hem them in. And they won't be able to leave their city. They'll throw up siege works. There'll be a siege that will cause them to either surrender or starve. And they will be taken into captivity, be taken out of their homeland. They're going to be taken to foreign lands. That's why in the later verse, under the, the Prince of Peace, he describes how they're going to be reunited. In fact, in the first chapter of Acts, when Jesus is taken up, just before he's taken up into heaven, after the disciples have seen him after his death and resurrection, they say, Lord, are you now going to restore Israel? You're going to bring everybody from around the world, everybody who was scattered. Are you going to bring them home and unite them as your family, as your people? All the estranged out there. See, Micah's saying that's going to happen in, in the Prince of Peace, this, this ruler who's going to be born after a period of travail, after a period of some painful agony. I'm not speaking from personal experience. I was there when both of my children were born. I've witnessed it. It's not something I want to experience. To be honest, I was kind of like better her than me. But that's what Micah is, it was a common conception of, of, of a certain agony, pain, and travail. And here he says that period of labor pains is the period that you're going to wait until he comes. And Micah's speaking 700 years before Christ, as it turned out. Micah didn't know that, of course. But this, this prince, I'm calling him, this ruler who is not king, he's not going to be one of those kings. He's going to be greater than one. He doesn't need the title king. He's going to be a prince. He's going to be a, a, a bona fide. He's going to be a statesman, not a politician. He's going to be somebody who, when he goes to Washington, he's not going to be bribe. He's going to be bribe-proof. 
In fact, he describes in chapter 3 how from the highest down, they're all taking bribes. They're all on the take. They're all corrupt. They're all out for themselves. They're not out for you. To understand the hope that he's talking about and the Savior that he's promising, you have to identify with those who are oppressed and who are being taken advantage of by others unjustly. Those who were put in that position to represent you. More importantly, in this, throughout the Bible, to represent God's good for you in relationship with him. Then you start to feel the promise and the hope and the peace of Micah's message. You have to dig down into some injustice that you've suffered to some wrong where people just turned away from you and ignored. No one would help you. You were a victim. A pawn in the hands of the more powerful. And yet, from the unlikeliest place, not Jerusalem, not Washington, D.C., from a little village to the south and the east of Jerusalem, a little place called Bethlehem, a backwater place. Yeah, that's where King David was born. But another one greater than David is going to come. That's what he's saying. And he says, he will be a true shepherd. Shepherd is a word that's used of rulers. But it's often used of good rulers. Because they really will shepherd. As he says here, they're going to lead. This shepherd is going to lead, protect, and provide. And then verse 5, he will be their peace. See, Micah, in his world, he suffered inhumanities and brokenness right along with the rest of the people. And a theme in all of this is something that is a theme among the prophets. It's as though the Lord were saying, if I were to kind of summarize that theme, you were made for better days. You were made for better days. And I will bring those days to pass. The prophets had a word for better days, and that word was shalom. It's the Hebrew word for peace. But peace was not the end of war. Peace is much broader and much deeper. Peace is not something that just like serenity washes over your soul or resides in your heart. This peace, although it is an inner peace, a spiritual peace, it's bigger and broader. And it's a peace that doesn't, isn't something that is just private, but it's public. And it extends to the ends of the earth. It's a peace that mends all brokenness and heals all people. And it affects not just people, but it, God's entire creation. 
In fact, in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, Isaiah gives us a picture of this peace, this healing. A wolf will dwell with a lamb. A leopard will lie down with a young goat. An ox and a young lion will graze together. As a small child leads them along, a cow and a bear will feed together. Their young will lie down together. A lion, like an ox, will eat straw instead of carnage. A baby will play over the hole of a snake. Over the nest of a serpent, an infant will put his hand. They shall no longer hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, although shalom will encompass the world, for the prophets, the hope of shalom or shalom was wrapped up in a person. A person. Someone is coming, they proclaim, who will usher in the shalom of God. God's peace is a person. In Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah, who was a near contemporary of Micah, they preached in the same similar times to the same people. Isaiah said, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In chapter 11 of Isaiah, it's as though God whispered to Isaiah, even as he whispered to Micah, a shoot, a little green shoot, will come up from the stump of Jesse. So in other words, after the people, as it were, are cut down by this invasion and their homeland, he also described it as just being an overgrown forest. He says, out of this stump, a little green shoot is going to grow, roots of a branch that will bear fruit. Micah speaks of him in chapter 4, verse 3. He shall judge, that is, he'll decide. He'll referee between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, nation shall not learn war anymore. You always wondered where that was? There it is, Micah 4.3. But that's as far as Micah and Isaiah got. That's as far as they could see. Prophets see for God. They speak for God. They are seers. God allows them to see things 
and to speak things that represent him, but that's as far as they could see. But it's a picture of Israel being gathered in and restored and also the whole world. Jesus, interestingly, is hailed as the Prince of Peace. It is in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, that above some very lowly, and when we say lowly shepherds, we mean these are people that had no status. They were street people kind of like, you know? And above them, the sky was lit, and angels began to declare what the archangel had announced, the leader of the choir, when he said that the Messiah had been born, and they're just outside of Bethlehem, this little place. There he's been born. A sign will be given to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in rags in a manger. That's the Messiah. Can you imagine? Only poor people, only lowly people would appreciate that. In other words, God's gotten down right to where we all are and everyone up from there. And then the choir sang, glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace, shalom, among those with whom he is pleased. That was the announcement of the birth of Jesus. Peace is a person. Peace is presented to us as Jesus Christ. Peace is also a great hope. Hope is looking ahead expectantly, right? A lot of the, look, and just uh, everyday hope, hope is a wish. It's an uncertain kind of, uh, hope, hope things bounce my way. We hope that our efforts, if we're trying to make something happen, we hope our efforts are prospered in some way that we can actually acquire what we have our eyes on and desire. But the hope of the Bible, it's more certain than that. Hope in the Bible is looking ahead expectantly. And hope, that kind of hope, generates energy and drive. Hope is a feature or department of faith. Faith trusts in God. It takes his word to heart because we believe God is trustworthy and faithful. So we put our trust and our belief in what he says, what he tells us, because he reveals himself. He tells us what we need to know about him, about the way we navigate in the present, and the way we think about the future. Hope is faith when it looks expectantly to the future. So hope is a division 
or an extension of faith that is looking toward the future. It's the same kind of activity with respect to the future as faith is with respect to the present. Does that make sense? Now, there's no disease. By the way, kids, look at, look at children. Hope, hope is knowledge plus the future. <laughs> really, I mean, look at it like a child. A mom and dad come home and say, hey, we're going to take you to Disneyland. Oh, yeah, I'm so happy. The child's never been to Disneyland. But the child is so excited. And mom and dad are trying to explain what Disneyland's like. And the child gets more excited. In fact, every day when you're a child, there's more knowledge that comes. And it is so exciting. Every day is just chock full of new things. And most of it's positive and most of it's exciting. That's why kids are so wonderful and such a joy to be around. But we who are adults, yeah, I've heard it before. Yeah, I know that. Tell me something new. What do you got for me? Really? And now, so much, so much that indulges us and is pleasurable and just, we are really kind of bored with it all a lot of the time. And then, you know, we come into the church, so to speak, and we hear the word, and yeah, I've heard that. Man, I've been through like so many Christmases, man. Tell me something new. And then we wonder, why, why can't I get up for Christmas? I just, you know, we're so busy with fulfilling the demands of Christmas that we've really lost the joy because we've lost the hope. We take it for granted. There's no greater disease among us around this world. There's no greater disease, in my opinion, than despair. You can have all your health, but if you have despair, you might as well have a death sentence. What is despair? It is hopelessness. I want to tell you the fast train to despair. If you want a ticket on the fast train to despair... Just indulge yourself in nostalgia. What is nostalgia? Well, it really affects adults the older they get because all the happy times are behind them. Nostalgia is looking back and wishing you could go home, go back to better times. The better times are back in the 50s. My generation. Man, 50, oh, but the 40s. Yeah, but what about the 60s and then the 70s? And then there's the 80s and the 90s. And then there's uh, the 2001 to 10s. And basically, it's, it's really here in America, it's a matter of make America great again. We're all wanting something that's behind us. 
Do you know that nostalgia comes from two Greek words, a Greek compound made up of the first word, nostos, which means return home, to return home, to go home, nostos, and alja, or algus, which means ache or pain, an ache or pain to go home. We want better days, but if our better days are behind us, listen to me. You're too worldly-minded and hearted. Our best days are still ahead of us. In fact, the present can be a part of the good old days. When we live them in faith and trust and in hope in the Lord. Listen. Look at Micah. Look at chapter 7, verse 7. Now think about this. Micah, Micah is not emailing in these messages. He's, he's not FaceTiming this. How is it over there in Jerusalem? Listen to me tell you what bums you are and how you need to get your act together and how God's going to bring his judgment on you. Well, where are you, Micah? Oh, I'm... 3,000 miles away. No, he's right in the midst. He's preaching on the street. Everything he tells them that's going to happen is going to happen to him. He is fully engaged among the people. And look at what it says in chapter 7, verse 7. But as for me, I will, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And then he says in verse 8, now who's he talking to? Those who don't want to have anything to do with him, those who wish he'd just go away, those who repudiate his message, even with terms of God. And he says, look, rejoice not over me, O my enemy, When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be light to me. You who oppose me, you who ignore me, I want you to know God hears me. And when I sit in darkness, because you have brought darkness upon me. When I'm down, because you've brought me down, God will lift me up. God will bring me out of the darkness because he is my light. The hope in the Bible is anchored in God's character, and it's found in one who's greater than us. If we try to find our hope in ourselves, we'll always be on the fast train to despair. How do I explain the character of God to you? I will tell you this. Um, I have certainty and great confidence that Shelley, my wife, and I will be married as long as we shall live. I don't have any kind of um, logical formula that I can roll out to convince you of this. 
What convinces me of it is not a logic or a mathematical equation or a philosophy. My confidence comes from knowing Shelley, her character, the person she is, the person I know her to be. And she would say the same thing about me. That, in a microcosm, is the confidence that we develop when we put our faith in God. We have confidence, we have hope, we have even expectation and certainty in God because of his character, because of who he is. And that's what Micah is expressing here, even in the midst of his difficulties. I mean, how do I talk about my relationship with Shelley? I talk very positively about it. I don't go around wringing my hands saying, I hope we don't get divorced. I sure hope we don't get divorced. Do you think she'll divorce me? I hope we don't. No, it's confident because I know her character. You can read about the hope we have in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 20, where the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham. That's what he says in that passage. He says, God's promise and covenant with Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus, and he says, Jesus is our hope. And then he describes it this way in verse 19. He says, this hope is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, our hope that enters in to the holy of holies of God's presence. That's the way he pictures it. In other words, when people could not go into the holy of holies because that was the very presence of God, Jesus is going to enter as our representative. We're going to all be on his heels. It would be like walking up to a club and the bouncers are saying, you can't go, you can't go, you can't enter. And then the, the person who has the pass takes us all and he says, they're all with me. That's Jesus taking us into the presence of God. That's our hope. Our hope is in the Lord, the promised prince of peace. That's our promise. The promise, the hope, the peace. Here's what I want you to understand as I close. You cannot, it cannot be unimagined. As a person and as a pastor, as I age, as many loved ones, acquaintances, friends uh, die, death mounts in my mind and my heart. The very first funeral I ever uh, officiated I, I didn't have a lot of experience. I had never even crafted a, a message for someone. I was about 22, and my friend Doug, who had come to Christ, but his entire family, um, they, they had, well, his aunt put a gun in her mouth, and she didn't even know the Lord. And Doug said, would you do the funeral? Because my family, uh, they have no church. They have no church family. They'd, 
They have no pastor. They know, don't know where to turn. And so we, I did that. I was a pastor in training at 22. And I put together a message. We didn't even have a church to meet in. And we were at the cemetery, at the graveside, and I shared a message. That was the very first message I ever gave. The very last message I ever gave was yesterday. And it was wonderful because we were in the Lord's house. There was a church and there was a pastor. And the family, um, whereas Doug's aunt put a gun in her mouth, this family's, this friend died on a tractor doing what he loves most. His family shed tears, but they were all around him with the larger church family around. And although there were tears that rolled down people's cheeks and eyes were red, there was this amazing peace, this amazing hope, this amazing sense of promise that was undergirding us. That's what I want to help you look at today that we have in Christ. That's something that elevates us so much that the people around us in this world who do not have the same Prince of Peace we have, that's a level that, of height or elevation that we live and breathe and move and walk on that the rest look up to. And yet we take it for granted and we get all pushed out of shape over such little things. And then when it comes to Christmas, we're looking for some kind of sparklers or fireworks to help us find the hope that should be in our soul. In Psalm 42.5, the psalmist David said to himself, to himself, and this is a sermon I want you to take and preach to yourself this week. He says, why are you so sad, my soul? Why are you agitated and troubled? Hope in God. There it is, a three-word sermon. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my Savior and my God. It's so easy for us to get our eyes on other things. That's when we start to despair. That's when we're discouraged. Even David experienced that. I've experienced that. You have experienced that. Maybe you came in today in the experience of that. Three-word sermon, hope in God. Hope in God. You don't know him, you say. Get to know him. He will prove himself to you. He's trustworthy. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He'll be true to you. And he'll fill your life with hope. And if you ever lose sight of him, you just tell yourself, you preach to yourself, hey, why are you so down, oh my soul? Why are you agitated? Hope in God. I will again see him who is my God and Savior. Will you stand with me? I'm going to close in prayer for us. I want to remind you this morning that after I pray, I'll be down front along with pastoral staff, 
other leaders, elders, deacons, or their spouses, if you'd like to pray with one of us, if you would like to make Jesus Christ not just um, an artifact of history, but the Savior and Lord of your life, come. Let's do that. Let's make that happen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, which you poured out on us that makes us your, makes you, makes us your church. Thank you for Jesus. We thank you in his matchless name. And all of God's people said, God bless you.